Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode. This week's guest is Dr. Tara Swart. Tara has an incredible list of credentials, including a medical doctor, a neuroscientist, a psychiatrist. She's a lecturer at MIT. She's also an executive business coach and an author of the best-selling book, which I absolutely love, called The Source. Tara's passion is in teaching people how to apply lessons from neuroscience and behavioral psychology in really simple and achievable ways to enhance our everyday lives to help us better cope with stress and change. I cannot think of a better time to speak to Tara than right now. We've just gone back into the lockdown in the UK and I feel like this conversation is such a gift to us all given the collective challenge and crisis that we're all in. Tara talks in this conversation about we really do have the power to create whatever we want in our life by knowing a little bit about how the brain works and how to use it to our advantage. We start off by talking about how so many of us, and I know this was my experience before my breakdown, breakthrough as I now call it, so many of us are living on autopilot, just going through our days without really asking that powerful question, what is it that I want out of life? So we talk about the science behind the law of attraction, manifesting, journaling, vision boards and gratitude. And these are things that we talk about on the podcast a lot because they're tools that I've used in my life to fundamentally transform how I feel about myself and how my life looks. And I'm so excited to be sharing this conversation with you. I think this conversation could absolutely change your life for the better. And I really hope that it does. Another thing that I think could change your life for the better is the Family Reset Plan. This is a two and a half hour online workshop that I created with two doctors of psychology, one specializing in parenthood psychology and one in child psychology, and then me as the coach. It's really your lockdown survival plan. It's going to help you handle stress. It's going to help you with many of the things that Tara talks about in this episode. There's a set of journaling questions in there to help you figure out what do you want on the other side of this? There's also tools in there to help you support your children emotionally, to help your children with any challenges or disappointments they may be experiencing as a result of what we're all going through. It's just £25. It's absolutely free if you work for the NHS. Please do check it out. It's got five-star reviews. I get tons of messages every day from people saying how much it has helped them. So please do check that out, familyresetplan.co.uk. Welcome, Tara. I'm so excited for this conversation this morning. I was just sharing with you, I've been following your work for a while. I love your book. It's on my bedside table. And I cannot wait at this really challenging time that we find ourselves in to have this conversation around choice and empowerment and manifesting. So I think that might be a really, really great place to start for people Mm -hmm. to get to know you and your work is... 
really you sit here today as the result of a big crisis and change Mm -hmm. in your life. Can you maybe start there and share a bit about how that was your awakening to discover what you call the source? Yes, thank you. It's very nice to hear that you love my book. I love what you're doing and I'm very excited to speak particularly to your audience as well. So around 2007, I was still working as a medical doctor and I was married and basically my marriage fell apart and I was actually working and living abroad. So within a very short space of time, I left not just my job, but I left medicine completely I came out of a marriage that had been a relationship of over a decade. So that was a big change. And I was in my mid thirties. So it was very formative years. I moved countries and I started a completely new career. So it was kind of like, did you really want to change all of those things at the same time? Like, could you not have done them one by one? So it really was a big personal and professional crisis. And I remember walking across the road one day in the city and thinking, No, I'm not a doctor anymore, but I'm not a coach yet because I was doing a coach training program whilst working in an office. So what am I? And thinking, wow, this is really an existential crisis. And if I hadn't been a psychiatrist and seen people go through things that really, really challenged their emotions to the point that they had to be on a psychiatric ward, I sort of wondered how I would have coped with this massive emotions that goes along with any sort of change. And I just had so many changes at the same time. So I would say more personally, though, without necessarily the background of being a doctor and a neuroscientist, that, you know, there's always one low point, isn't there, that you can remember. And thankfully, it was a turning point. It's not always the case for everybody. But, you know, for me, it was. And I sort of, I remember it in my mind as being like flat on the floor, although I'm not sure I was actually physically flat on the floor, but that kind of feeling. At the times, I really had to like pull into my resources to be able to just get through a day or get through a situation. I discovered or maybe rediscovered that determination was a really strong value and characteristic that I had. That helped me to really pick myself up again and realize that there were a lot of good choices I could make now. And then I did use what I knew about psychiatry and emotions and neuroscience and the brain to really ramp that up and decide to not just survive, but actually to thrive. And funnily enough, you mentioning everybody being in a time of crisis now, that determination has really popped up for me. And the funniest little things like, you know, things like not being able to open a jam jar, it's sort of like the difference between going and saying to somebody, could you open it for me? Or thinking, you know, I'm going to get a rubber glove out and I'm going to open this myself. And, you know, bigger things like fixing fridge doors and things like that. But almost to the point of being stubborn, I sort of realized how determined I was to do things. And it kind of reminded me of that time. And I think that when we go through a crisis, even if it's different, we often have things like recurring anxiety dreams that are related to the last time we had any kind of crisis, even if one's a breakup and one's a career thing and one's a pandemic. So I think those themes are really interesting. And I definitely feel that the things I learned around 2007 to 2009 have helped me to sort of manage the emotions of this year, really. The fact that I've worked on building up my resilience that I believe through neuroplasticity, that that's something that you can top up. It's not just something that Zoe's got and I haven't got, you know, that's really helped. Yeah. So that's kind of like how I would summarize going from that crisis to this one, really. There's so much in what you said that I want to unpack and we will, you know, through the course of this conversation. The first thing that I want to talk to you about is this idea of choice, which I think is actually really central 
to your work. And I think you described it. I don't know if you say these words in the book. This is what I kind of read between your words, that you were living on a bit of an autopilot before that big crisis and huge change that you went through. And actually what you learned to do was take back the power to create the life that you actually wanted. And I think so many people are sleepwalking through life. I think you call it autopilot. I call it sleepwalking. It's so many Mm. different. It's the same thing, isn't it? Mm. Just allowing life to happen to us. And I wonder actually if this crisis that we all find ourselves in could be a mass awakening for people to start taking back their power. So I'd love you to talk a bit about how people do that. How can you go from that place of, I don't like my job, I don't like where I live, I don't like how I feel about myself, to Mm. actually knowing the power that you have within yourself to change all those things? Unfortunately, it seems like for most people, it does take some sort of crisis to really initiate that change. And so partly I wrote the source because I just wished that everybody didn't have to go through a crisis like I did to make that decision to take what I call agency over your life. But, you know, even if nothing major happens, people sort of tend to get to that midlife point, don't they, where for some reason they start to question things. But as you were saying, you wrote in the book that you were living on autopilot. Of course, I didn't think I was. But I believe that everybody is to a certain extent and that it takes a jolt to really make you reassess things. But the background is that I'm the child of first generation Indian immigrants. And basically, I was on a path to becoming a doctor, like from the age of two. And because I was good at science and maths and stuff, I didn't really question it. But actually, when I look back, I'm like an idiot savant at languages, for example. And I was really good at history and geography. And so I just feel in a way that choice is so important because if I'd had that whole smorgasbord of choice laid out before me I don't know if I would have done something different but I just think parental expectation is so huge and it's there from so early on that it's become subconscious so you're not even aware of it you think that you want the career that you want that you have the political affiliation that you support the sports team that you have but actually a lot of it is because before you were sort of able to make those choices, they've been ingrained in your neural architecture as you grow and they become intertwined with getting love and support and positive attention from your primary caregivers. So I think in that way, we're all on autopilot and that's normal. And, you know, often it's actually very healthy and it leads to a good life, but it's worth examining. Well, you call it imprinting. I wrote this down, that's what I was just looking at. You say, know your ghost change your destiny and I feel so impassioned about this we talk about it on the podcast most weeks because I am so passionate about it exactly what you're saying that we think we are who we are but really so much of that as in your experience and mine comes down the generations Mm. so how does someone begin to unpick that and did you find that quite a scary moment you talked about crossing the road having that who am I now Tell us about unpicking those ghosts, what your experience was. It's definitely a scary moment. I think particularly because I'd done a vocational degree and, you know, then the career path is very set out and you almost feel like you can't do anything else because, you know, if you have a psychology degree, there's so many things that you can do. But if you have a medical degree, it feels like you have to be a doctor. And so I think the world is really opening up in terms of there was an article in Nature, the amazing journal, about alternative careers for people with PhDs. And so I was one of the people that was highlighted in that. But there was a filmmaker, comedian, you know, really different things. So I think just thinking about 
choice in terms of what you can do with what you've got is a really good way of thinking about it because that applies to your own brain but also to the skills and qualifications that you've picked up until now which may not necessarily have to go along the path that you thought they would so I think for anyone to have that moment of like what am I who am I is really scary but actually speaking to you Zoe right now I think it would be so scary to go through your whole life and never have that question yeah, I agree. I think that's scarier. You know, yeah. I'm sure you've read the book, Five Regrets of the Dying. You know, it's yeah. such a powerful book. I mm. often reread that because mm. the number one is, I wish I'd have lived a life truer to myself, not who the world wanted me to be. My fear is that mm. I get to my deathbed and I realise I didn't use every inch of myself. That to me feels scarier. Literally making me want to cry. <laughs> that's like so profound. The main problem is actually, you know, a very easy thing to solve, which is giving yourself the time to think about that. And that's why early on in the book, very early on, and I thought about this and rearranged it several times, I asked people to set an intention and to really take some time to step back and set that intention. And that's so early on in the book, actually, that I think it's before any of the exercises or journaling that People may not even really understand what that might mean, but it becomes clearer as you go through the book. But I felt very strongly that that had to be at the beginning, just to put that seed into the brain to start germinating and thinking about, okay, you know, what do I really want? I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but around the time, you know, my marriage was breaking down, I literally woke up one day and thought, you know, I went to medical school because my parents wanted me to. I did a PhD because my parents and my professors said I could. Probably choosing psychiatry instead of more general medicine was the first rebellious act that I took. And, you know, that's pretty small. So I actually thought, what did I actually want? What do I want to do? Then there's that little crisis of there isn't anything else I can do. You know, what can I do kind of thing? And actually my ex-husband's uncle, who was kind of like my father-in-law because my father-in-law had died before we got married. He said to me, make a list of 100 things that you could do. And it might take a year or two, but by the time you get to 100, there'll be one thing on that list that you can do. That was such an amazing piece of advice. And I'm not sure if I actually got to 100, but I got to the point where I felt that coaching was like the thing for me. And this was through talking to friends, particularly a friend who'd had a very similar academic path. So she'd also done a PhD in neuroscience, but then she'd gone to work for a big management consulting firm and had, you know, a much more glamorous life than me. And she came to me and said, coaching is kind of in between what you do and what I do. And it was literally like a light bulb moment. I sort of looked into it and it was very much about focus and discipline, but it also had a very Zen side to it. And I was like, right, that's the two sides of me. And actually that is interesting looking back because that was like 13 years ago. And I wrote the source three years ago, I guess. And that was the first time I went out to the world and said, science and spirituality are both parts of me because up until then I'd had a professional life that was science and medicine and then coaching and speaking about neuroscience and maybe you know some mindfulness had crept into that speaking towards the latter years but really the whole yoga meditation Ayurveda spirituality you know being interested in other forms of spirituality I guess what people call new age thinking that was not something I'd ever let leak into my professional life. And that brings me on to something that I think will really help people to start to unpick these know your ghosts, you know, choose your destiny kind of thing, which is that under crisis, which we're 
basically all in at the moment, you know, everyone in the world pretty much in 2020, it really magnifies the ghosts. And the ghosts are things like the values, the roles, the secrets, the expectations, the boundaries, the identifications that you grew up with. So those things that imprinted on your neural pathways. And they're both societal in the, you know, the family dynamic that you actually grow up in puts you into a certain role. You may identify with a certain family member or you may hear often like, oh, you're just like your grandfather or, you know, that sort of thing. But it's also epigenetic, which means that it's come through generations. It's not just what you see as a child. It's the altered gene expression that you may have inherited from your parents, grandparents, and we can't prove it yet that it could be more generations than that, but I think it's only a matter of time till we do. So what that's about is, biggest example of that is the Dutch famine and the Holocaust, where people had to suppress, not consciously obviously, but they suppressed certain gene expressions to survive. And although the next generation didn't need to do that, they inherited the changed gene expression, not the original DNA. So we know that stressful experiences or, you know, equally positive experiences, you know, they actually change the expression of our genes. And obviously things that we witness in childhood, everything from domestic violence to a very positive role model imprints itself on our neural architecture as we're growing as well. So in lockdown, for example, things like boundaries, because that was a very artificial boundary. You were confined within a physical space and with certain people. That could have really come up for people, depending on whether you were the kind of family where people could randomly drop in, stay the night, you know, stay for dinner, or everything was always like, you know, play dates were arranged in advance kind of thing. So whatever you were used to as a boundary, being confined, that could have been actually something that you're very used to, or it could have been something that you found extremely uncomfortable and perhaps rebelled against or felt very suppressed by if you went against what was natural for you. So I think this time has been so interesting to re-examine exactly those things, the values, the expectations, the boundaries and stuff that most likely would have been reignited from childhood because that's the default for the brain to go back to what it knows. I'm so glad you brought this up. And it's so powerful to hear it with this totally unique view that I think you bring to these conversations with your incredibly strong scientific credentials and your incredibly brilliant coaching and bringing in some of that more Eastern thinking. I think it's so powerful to hear you say that, that under times of stress, our programming comes to the surface. Mm. What comes up for me is just compassion. I just think about how hard it can be to have this stuff come up during these time of crisis. Now, what I want to talk to you about is with your coaching tools, Hmm. how does someone use this stuff that comes to the surface? I am such a believer that stuff has to come up for me in order for me to become aware of it, see it, heal it if there's some healing to do and then move on. I don't want to get stuck in it. How does someone use some of the tools that are in the book to notice that this stuff is coming up for them right now and move forward into a better, brighter, whatever they want the future to look Mm -hmm. like? Such a good question. And I love the way you've said, I'm a big believer that things have to like come up for me. Well, that's beyond doubt from the science. So the first step of the four practical parts of my book is called raised awareness. And that's because you don't know what you don't know. So if there's something that's fully submerged in your subconscious that's driving some of your behavior and you're not aware of it, 
you can't do anything about it. And that's why I always say 50% of the coaching is that first piece of raising awareness. And that's raising from non-conscious to conscious some sort of belief or thought pattern or behavior pattern that could potentially be holding you back from being your best self or living the highest potential life that you could. Obviously, it's easier to do that with somebody sort of acting as a mirror to you, whether that's a therapist or a coach or a friend or a partner, but you can do it by yourself. It was important to me when I was writing the book that everybody's got a brain, so neuroscience is for everyone. And it felt like quite undemocratic that only people who could afford coaching or therapy would get access to that self-knowledge. So I really tried to write it out as if you're coaching yourself. And that's why I'm so passionate that people hopefully don't just read the book, but they actually go back and do the exercises. And what's been very rewarding is that people who aren't scientific at all have said to me, that's the kind of book I would read and think, yeah, I'll go back and do the exercises someday, but I wouldn't probably ever do them. But the science made me think I should actually do these. And in fact, you may remember the story from my book that I did that exact same thing. So I read this book from 1926 called The Master Key System when I was happily married And I was like, yeah, yeah, this is really cool. And, you know, if I ever need to, I'll come back and do the exercises. Years and years and years later, I remembered that book and I went back. I didn't read it again. I skim read the chapters, but I did all the exercises at the end of each chapter. And it had come out as a weekly newspaper bulletin. So it was kind of very like each section worked as you went along. And it was, you know, this sort of mind expanding thought process. And I loved it, but I thought, I want to write a book that is secular because this book was quite dogmatic. That was more updated because obviously it was quite old. So, but you know, more modern practical language and based on cutting edge, rigorous science, not talking about vibrations and frequencies and stuff that can't really be proved. Although there's a lot of that stuff that's really good, but for someone like me, and surprisingly for people who don't have a scientific background, it was important to understand how it works in your brain. It's actually your brain that can do it. So the steps are once you're aware that there's something, and that absolutely can come from journaling, from doing some of the exercises in the book. The next step is not to rush into trying to change. It's a process called focused attention, where you notice times that you've done the behavior that you don't want to do anymore. Or for me, something that's coming up because I'm like super busy with work, working across several time zones, is that I'm just like a bit quicker to get irritable than I am when I'm at my best. You know, I'm noticing that at the moment. And when it happens, I basically tell myself very quickly, like that was more irritable than you would normally be. Keep an eye on that kind of thing. Normally in coaching, I ask for a month of just focused attention. So noticing and not trying to change anything. Then the third step is called deliberate practice, which is choosing a new way of being, thinking, believing, and working really hard to override that natural default with this new behavior. And it will be physically tiring. It might even make you hungry. It's changing pathways in your brain. That correlation for people and, you know, some of my psychology colleagues you know, when they get that psychological work is physical work in your brain, it's like doing weightlifting, therefore it's tiring. And it seems like nothing's happening for ages. And then there's a tipping point where suddenly, oh, it was so much easier to not get irritated by that thing my husband said or whatever. It's because neurons that fire together wire together. So the more you practice this new behavior, and this can apply to something like 
thinking positively rather than, you know, having the same recurring self-doubt, negative talk in your head, the more you replace that with a positive thought or a confident thought, there comes a point where that pathway is built up strongly enough that it's actually thicker than the pathway you had before. And then that becomes the new you and the new way that you think. And I literally say that sometimes I feel like coaching is like being a midwife because you literally like give birth to a new person. It's not about pretending to act in a way that's not you. It's about getting yourself to the point that that person that you want to be, that you choose to be, is naturally you. It's simple, but it's not easy, is what I'm hearing as well. And I've been through this process and you know I'm a coach too and I coach people through a a process like that and I think what I love so much about what you're saying is I call it awareness acceptance and action Mm. is broadly the same and I think that that acceptance that you're talking about which is the noticing is so important because for me it gives that heightened awareness I start to see and my clients start to see the cost of the behavior And I think that's a really important jumping off point for change. Can we talk about when people are going towards this, you know, you mentioned this new you, the new goal. You dropped in a few tools, journaling. I think I heard you say manifestation. Can we talk about some of those things? Let's start with journaling because I love journaling and I know you do too. Tell us about how journaling in that three-step process to change where that fits in and why it's so helpful. So actually that it's a four part process and I forgot to mention the last one, which is important, which is accountability. So you as a coach will hold somebody accountable to this behavior that they've committed to changing. There are certain forms of technology that you can use to hold yourself accountable, particularly if it's a more quantitative thing, like I'd like to exercise three times a week. You know, you can use an app that tracks what you do and see when you're not doing it and stuff like that. So journaling is a good way to hold yourself accountable. For me, the game changer with journaling was reading back over it. There were times when I did it really regularly for a year or more, and then times where I dip in and dip out a bit more. But I think it's good to have that foundation of having done it regularly at one point. And so reading over it, especially if it's handwritten, you know, it's your handwriting, it's your thought processes. So there are many ways you can journal. Some people do morning pages, which is just a mind dump first thing in the morning, You can use your journal to do gratitude lists. You can use it to do goal setting. But I particularly like to use it for tracking emotional reactions to things and unpicking when I made a decision that was based on intuition, whether that aligned with my logic or not. And if it didn't, what the outcome was, you know, depending on which path I went down. To me, the most classic not listening to that niggle of your intuition is when you're in a relationship and you kind of know that it's not good and it's probably going to end, but you just stay and you overstay and you try to make it work and you know that you shouldn't. And that's the kind of thing that you can really see if you read back over your journal where you can see that you sensed that this was not good, but you lied to yourself. And that's what I think seeing your own handwriting as you read back is where if you hadn't written it down, you'd forget it. And that's a very easy way of not being aware, like you say, of sleepwalking. If you've written it down, then I mean, it's like a slap in the face when it's in your own handwriting. You know, what I saw was the same emotional cycles going on again and again and again. But if I hadn't written them down, I wouldn't have noticed. I would have just thought, this is what's happening right now. And then for me, it was a really, really great way of honing my intuition because what I saw 
was that every single time my gut had told me something and I hadn't gone with it, my gut was right. What's the neuroscience behind journaling? Why is it so effective? I know there's some incredible studies coming out at the moment around journaling and treatment for PTSD and all sorts. Why is just putting pen to paper and writing our thoughts down so powerful? There's a correlation between stressful emotions or stressful events like from PTSD, which is more imagery than word thoughts, and levels of the stress hormone cortisol. And they're absolutely correlated. So if you have high cortisol levels, like we all would during a global pandemic, then you will have symptoms of stress, even if you're not that aware of them. And that's another thing that journaling is good for, things like tracking insomnia or anxiety or muscle twitching or whatever stress looks like for you. And so there's two ways to deal with that. And one is that you can physically sweat cortisol out of your body by doing aerobic exercise, and that will lower the levels of cortisol and that will lower the symptoms of stress. Or you can speak out loud, which is why coaching and therapy are so good for all of those things. Or you can write out what's going on for you emotionally. If you just think about it in your mind and it goes round and round, that actually elevates cortisol levels. But if you get it out of the brain body system, either by physical exertion or speaking or writing... And that's why actually I haven't tried this myself, but journaling by doing an audio recording or even a video journaling. I think video journaling works very good for PTSD because it's more visual. So it's like you're meeting a visual trauma with a visual therapy, as it were. But for most of us, just writing it down. And again, I believe that writing it with a pen rather than typing it, although I know some people do type and it's obviously better than nothing, but it feels like there's something to do with that tactile stimulation you know, reading the written word, if you say it out loud, then articulating speech and your own voice going in through your ear and you hearing it just multiplies that message to your brain that you're recognizing these emotions, you're raising your awareness, you're expelling them from your brain body system. I mean, it's so good, but I would love to hear more about this research that's coming out about journaling. Oh yeah. I read it the other day. I can't remember what journal or where it was that for people with PTSD, and I can't remember the specific what it was, they'd given them some daily journaling practice and they'd reduced their symptoms by 40%, which was more effective than talking therapy. Wow, that's really interesting. I think what I love about journaling is, as I said at the start, I think all of your work is really about empowerment. And I find there is so much that we can do. And journaling is free and it doesn't need to take hours. I just do it five minutes every night. Sometimes I just dump my thoughts down and Mm -hmm. I can literally feel the stress reducing because I think when my thoughts are all up in my head, A, there's very little I can actually do about my thinking with my thinking. Yeah, exactly. I find that really challenging. Yeah. I'm just getting things out that are worrying me. And the other thing, it'd be good to hear your views on this. I always see things in my journaling that are insightful or I didn't realize or I make connections or I typically will have an aha moment every night just five minutes I'll be like ah that's what that is and I know that had I tried to think that through I wouldn't have got there that is so amazing because I actually think that speaks to your whole concept of empowerment because see how much smarter you are than you thought you were until you read it written down 
we're each an amazing guide for ourselves, but we don't see that because we don't articulate it in a way that's recorded that we can kind of prove. Like no one can think their way out of their thinking, you know, like you said, it has to be approached from a different angle and getting it out and then seeing it back. It's stunning. It's really insightful. God, I love what you just said. I love what you just said. (laughs) Mutual appreciation. I I loved you said we are all such powerful guides because I think you and I, we sit in the wellbeing world and the empowerment world and it's incredible how much is out there. But also I think this is why I love your work because you remind us that we have the ability within ourselves. And you talk about that brilliantly and it'd be good to hear your thoughts on this that actually as a society, we've devalued that intuition, that power that we have within ourselves to become our highest, happiest, most joyful selves. And we tend to outsource our power to society, to our parents, to our thinking, which is fundamentally flawed because Mm -hmm. we're wired for negativity. Mm. Can you talk to this idea of how evolutionary that happened and what we can do to counter it? So many thoughts coming into my head that I want to cover, but I think that's an important thing to do to set the scene for people of why we don't listen to our intuition and why we're geared towards negativity. So basically, when we lived in caves, before we had articulated speech, the brain was more like the brain of a very higher primate, like a bonobo or a chimpanzee, where the limbic system, which is the emotional intuitive system of the brain, which is about the size of your clenched fist. So imagine that inside your skull, you know, the spinal cord, the brainstem, which is where your spinal cord bulges, just next to your ears, and then the limbic system deep in the center of the brain. In cave times, we had a very thin layer of the cortex over that, which is the planning, predicting the future, you know, pattern recognition, articulated speech, complex problem solving. So we didn't have those abilities like we do now. In fact, we were no more special than any other animal roaming around on the savannah. Then what happened, and we don't really know which way around this happened, but basically we discovered how to make fire and then we could cook meat and digest protein much more easily than we ever had before when we only ate raw or vegetarian. So either there was some kind of evolution and the cortex grew and that's how we you know, started to use tools and make fire, or that ingestion of protein allowed the guts to shrink because we didn't need such a long gut to digest our food and the cortex to massively grow until the cortex was as thick as the limbic system. And so that's what it looks like now in our brains. There's a limbic system the size of your fist and then there's the rest of it is filled up with the cortex. So going from a sliver like a bonobo to the massive frontal cortex all over that we have now massively accelerated us to become the most successful animal on the planet because we could try to predict the future. Of course, you can't predict the future, so it wasn't always correct, but that means you could plan and then you could speak to your tribe. So it was much easier to communicate than when we gesticulate. And so once you have that shortcut of speech, why would you bother trying to decipher body language? Why would you listen to those micro-muscular changes on people's faces or that feeling you get in your stomach that's based on the hormonal interaction between people or the little hairs on your arm or the back of your neck standing on end. What? That's just too much hard work. If I tell you something, Zoe, you might as well take it at face value because it's going to be too much for you to try to look at every single micro expression in my face, look at my body language. If we were together in person, think about how you feel just by being in my presence. 
it's just easier to listen to what I say and say, okay, you know, I believe that unless I did something to prove to you that I couldn't be trusted. That's easier. And so that's what we do. And it's also easier to listen to the logic that is the loudest voice in our head and not delve deeper. You know, and I love that quote, there is a voice that doesn't have words, listen. And I think that's one of the chapter quotes in my book. You can't remember everything that's happened in your whole life. But, you know, what people call cell memory or muscle memory is actually that what you need to live your life and do your work on a day-to-day basis is in that outer cortex. Your habits and behavior patterns are deeper in the limbic system, maybe in the brainstem. And then your wisdom and intuition, which is all the life lessons you've picked up, but you don't consciously remember what for. And that's why journaling is so important, because you lose the consciousness of what you've learned, but it's still embedded. And it basically is embedded mostly in your gut neurons. And that's why it's called gut instinct. So I think what we were talking about is how we as a society these days value our prefrontal cortex which is our rational logical thinking Mm. which my understanding this might be wrong only makes up about six percent of the the brain and the rest of it which is what I'm hearing you say is where our innate wisdom is we tend to ignore or devalue and actually that's through no fault of our own isn't it that's through is it homeostasis where the brain actually doesn't like change it wants to shortcut things and make them as quick and as easy Mm. as possible for survival for survival, the challenge is, is that those systems and processes that the brain naturally does don't lend themselves to creating the lives that we might want. Is that right? So I want to pick up on one thing, because I know people will say, Tara, I didn't pick up on that, which is this 6% thing. So there's this neuro myth that we only use 10% of our brains, and then there's allocating percentages to how much we think in different ways, which I actually ask people to do in the book, but it's a gross oversimplification. So I created the model of the six ways of thinking, but it's much more complex than that. But if you think about emotions, listening to your body, intuition, logic, motivation, and creativity, then you can allocate percentages to them to get a snapshot of what your thinking style preferences are. But we all have the ability to use 100% of our brains. And we're using different amounts and types of thinking at different times. But, you know, even if you said, I'm super creative and, you know, intuitive, but I'm not very good at making decisions and, you know, I'm not very good at listening to my body. It's not that you can't do those things. You are doing them all the time. Maybe you're doing them less, but you can do them. And if you chose to, you could do more of them. So it's not about being hundred percent and, you know, equally good at everything, but it's about understanding that you have access to and a choice to making a well-rounded holistic decision that's based on your logic and, your, you know, your ability to make great decisions, but also incorporates understanding what's going on emotionally for you and your family, what your gut's telling you from your journal, thinking outside the box a bit, all that kind of thing. So I'd rather people just think of it as like, exponential power that's available to them than sort of think, well, you know, 6% for this. But, you know, what you said is right, which is that it's easiest to default to logic. It's often safest as well, because imagine your boss or your husband asks you why you made a decision and your only answer is, I felt it in my gut. I mean, that could, you know, be very, very easily questioned, even if you're sure it's right. It's hard for other people to comprehend that. So if you say, 
I made a spreadsheet and this was the answer that came out, then that's just much more acceptable as well. So that's kind of the reason. But there's an exercise I really, really want to share with your listeners, which it totally just came to my limbic system whilst we were talking, which is about going back to that phrase that you loved, which is we're such a good guide for ourselves. And I want to sort of give a disclaimer about how human I am, even though I wrote the book. So in a way, the source is like my journal. And I was talking to this amazing friend of mine and saying that I was really struggling with saying no to certain pieces of work. And she was like, Tara, you wrote the book, like go and read your own book about saying no to things. And later she actually texted me and told me the page number. So I went and looked at it and it was kind of embarrassing that I had written this, like why you should say no to things that, you know, you take up space in your life and how you can do it and how you can feel so good about it. And it was a bit like reading back over a journal entry because it was so me the way it was written. So we can all have moments like that. But on the other side, there's this exercise. It's a coaching exercise called creative mentoring, where normally you pick three people that you really admire or respect and you ask them for advice. But I have a slightly different version of it that I use for myself that I actually have found to be even more powerful, which is I literally stand up in a room where I've got enough space to take seven steps backwards and forwards. And I pose a problem that I'm facing now as a question. And then I take seven steps backwards and I imagine myself in that standing position as myself seven years ago. And I say, this is how old I am. This is what I'm doing. And then Tara in the present asks myself seven years ago to give me advice about that question. And that's always interesting because I feel like often when you look back, you're a lot more fearless and you know confident when you were younger, but not always the case. The one that actually makes me cry when I do it is when I then come back to the center and I step forward seven years and I say, this is how old I am. This is what I'm doing. And I asked for advice and it's like, it's so amazing because deep down, you know yourself and you believe in yourself. You know, you know that you would look back and think, why were you being anxious about those silly things? And when you actually go there and you really stand in your power as your future self and you look at yourself now, it is really incredible. And I would encourage all of your listeners to pick the thing that's most on their mind at the moment and do that exercise today. Like even drop the seven years ago, if you want to but you know the whole exercise is doing it both ways ask your future self because that voice is coming from your intuition it's nothing else that's so powerful I've had experiences I haven't done that one and I love the physical moving within that as well I'm sure there's something in that from a neuroscience perspective but I've written my 80th birthday party speech (laughs) and things like you know like really thinking about my life in a far more kind of helicopter view Like, what is it that I'm here to do? How do I want to be remembered? And I love that you talk about this idea of future self. And I wonder if you could talk about vision boarding and manifestation and law of attraction, which has that kind of forward Mm -hmm. energy, because I know that's such a core part of what you're passionate about. So Mm. what is law of attraction and manifestation as you teach it? So actually, the first piece of research that I did before properly starting to write the source was to look up the laws of attraction, see what they actually were, see what sort of consensus there was about how many there were and what they were, and see how much of that I could back up with modern cognitive science, so psychology and neuroscience. Because I was always intrigued by them, but it kind of felt wrong to me that because they're to do with the way you think changes your reality and changes your life, why were they never based on cognitive science? They were based on quantum science. 
So, you know, I was genuinely curious about that, even if I didn't go on to write a book. But what then amazed me was that nine out of 10 or 10 out of 12, there was a very obvious to me cognitive science explanation of how they work. So then I thought, we're really onto something here because, you know, there were a couple where I couldn't explain them by science, but then you sort of think, well, if 10 out of 12 are this obvious to me, might as well do the other two. Or if people don't want to do something that's not really backed up by science, you could also just like leave that aside. But what I decided to do in the end was distill them down to six themes. And those themes are abundance, which is what you sort of mentioned earlier when you said that we're geared to negativity and that's the survival mechanism. But in the modern world, that doesn't serve us anymore. So overriding that very consciously through the things we talked about before, gratitude, journaling, replacing negative thoughts with positive thoughts is the start. The next one is manifestation. So once you're in that abundant state of mind where you're more likely to take healthy risks, this really goes back to what we were saying earlier, which is the scariest thing is never taking that risk of really like finding out who you are and could be. Then you start to try to actually materialize in real life the things that you want, whether those are characteristics of yourself or, you know, actual tangible things like a home and a family, or whether it's a certain type of career, freelance, or something very specific on a career ladder. And so, you know, what I sort of say in that area is that all the things we want in life, health, happiness, wealth, good relationships, they're all governed by the way that you think. But you can't just think about them. You've got to like, you know, make them actually real in your life. And so that's why I call what's known as vision boards, action boards, because it's exactly the same process of making one, like a collage that represents what you want in your life. And it works better on the subconscious if the images are more metaphorical than literal. But it's not about creating a fantasy and then sitting at home and waiting for it to come true because you're thinking positively. It's about doing something concrete every day, whether that's just your journaling or it's a little bit more proactive, like networking or dating or, you know, depending on what it is. You know, what you said empowerment is taking agency over that. It's saying I can make this happen, not I'm at the mercy of the world and what happens around me. So that's a big shift for some people. And it's very easy to give up with that. And that's why patience is one of the themes as well, which is explained by what I said earlier about that neural tipping point. Like when you're doing that hard psychological work, things don't fall into your lap immediately. You have to like, you know, really work at changing your thought process and how you assess risk and failure and things like that before you start to see these things come true. And so the action board thing is based on some actual ways that the brain works called selective filtering, selective attention and value tagging. So I'll just give you like a crazy statistic, which is that the amount of information that we would read in a newspaper in a week now is the amount of information that somebody would have absorbed in their entire life a hundred years ago. Wow, that's incredible. And we were always overloaded with information, but it's like insane now. And so the brain is very good at naturally filtering out what's not relevant and necessary right now for us to survive or thrive. But that, of course, means that you're like the passenger on the journey of your life. You're on autopilot or you're sleepwalking, because if you're not choosing what your brain's filtering in and out, then it's defaulting to that caveman survival way of thinking. So having an action board that's highly visible, that you look at regularly and you visualize those things coming true and you do little things to try and make them come true, that starts to turn the tables on this whole, is life happening to me or am I in the driver's seat? Mm. 
So I'll give you, you know, a really sweet little example that came up recently, which is, and this is actually a friend and fellow coach who found all the images and then just wanted me to like help put it together with the final touches and really get it right. And very central theme was a partner and a dog. And, you know, there were lovely images of couples walking on the beach with a dog and, you know, the beach house. And then, you know, so what I'm trying to say is there are small things on a vision board that you can actually manifest quite quickly. And there are a lot of things that are out of control, perhaps things around fertility or, you know, marriage or sometimes even a particular home. So basically I said to him, do you have to wait till you find the partner to get the dog? Because you've had two rescue puppies before, so you could get your own dog. And he said, well, you know, the dream is that I meet the love of my life and we get a dog together. And I said, but the more you make your action board come true, the more you'll believe that the rest of it's going to come true. And that's really important. And it's also very practical because if you get a dog, then you've got to go out and walk it. So you're more likely to meet people and you're more likely to meet somebody who is a dog owner and loves dogs. And it was a coincidence, but this friend of mine did get a rescue puppy and within literally a matter of weeks met someone. And I have so many stories like that, Zoe. You know, I've got stories like that myself. Of course, like 10 years ago, once I'd had a couple of successes with vision boards, I encouraged my friends to do them. Yeah, there's so many action board babies and engagement rings within my circle of friends. You know, I would sometimes introduce it into business coaching if it was relevant. But after the book came out, I have got thousands of DMs from people either telling me stories or sending me actual photos like, look at this photo that was on my action board and look at this photo I've just taken of where I am now. I mean, like just so incredible that it's actually massively expanded my mind as to how much this works. Well, this podcast before it was manifest real was on a vision board. Wow. What we are doing right now is as a result. And what I love so much about how you talk about these things is that it's so steeped in the neuroscience you know it's so clear around value tagging which you know I take to be that your brain focuses on what you tell it is important Mm. and what we focus on expands so it makes so much sense doesn't it that if we want to feel a certain way or have certain things just telling our brain to focus on those Mm -hmm. means that we're more likely to get them yeah it just makes a lot of sense. And yet, you know, sometimes I think, God, I can't believe that I wasn't in the driving seat of my life in this way before. Because I think when you start to have that awakening, like you did 10 years, 15 years ago, and I did, and it's such a different way to live, Mm -hmm. which is knowing that the way that we think and what we do every day has far bigger impact than I think we could ever believe on how we feel and how our lives are. It's just so inspiring and it does feel like a different way to live. Does it feel like that to you? It really does because in the last 12 or 13 years, as is life, especially as we're getting older, I've had a few like, you know, friends and family members get like really bad health news and stuff. And, you know, it's devastating at the time. And I remember one time just being so shocked and maybe even crying and thinking like, what will I do if this happens to this person I care deeply about? And very quickly, it popped into my mind, I'll cope, I'll manage, I'll be resilient. Whereas, you know, the first time around when I got divorced, I just, you know, felt like I was weak and a failure and I wouldn't manage and 
it's sad, like I said, that it takes one of those to get you to think like that, but you can only use a bad event in your life to try to make sure that you build resilience. And actually, that's another thing that I really wanted to say about journaling and gratitude lists is that we focus quite a lot just for the purposes of making this really practical and easy to follow on quite external things. But I changed my gratitude listing from things like friends, family, travel, and you know, quite external things to much more internal things like my health, my resilience, my creativity, my vulnerability. And that massively helped me to feel like, obviously, I don't want bad things to happen in my life or to people that I love. But things like that do happen. And if it does happen, I feel like I have the tools to cope as best as a human being, you know, could, whereas I definitely didn't have that before. And so I'm so passionate about the fact that through neuroplasticity, you can build and change your emotional reactions, your resilience, your intuition. The analogy is like learning a language. And that's why coaching takes six, nine, 10, 12 months, because, you know, nobody learns a language in a few weeks. Exactly. And what I'm hearing you saying with that, turning that gratitude inwards more is this idea of self-love and really coming to cherish yourself and having that basis of esteem and love, knowing that you can get through whatever life might throw at you. And I think that makes you more able to ask for help as well, because you don't feel any shame around asking for help. And going back to this cave person analogy that I keep using, like, we thrived because we were part of a large tribe. And at times like this, particularly, we need our tribe around us. Obviously, you know, if you're locked down, you can't physically have your tribe around you, but it's easy to lose boundaries between work and life and just kind of, you know, everything you have expands to fill the time that you have. But it's so important to be proactive about maintaining those tribal support relationships that you have now more than ever. Hmm. What can people do? I know that we're maybe physically separated at the moment, but have you got any tools that you've seen working to help people maintain that connection, as you say, which is so important? I think it really just goes back to a small example of what we were talking about before, which is that I was just having too many times where I'd suddenly think, oh my goodness, I haven't spoken to that friend for like weeks or that was happening quite a lot. So that became raised in my awareness. So then I started, you know, focusing attention on that more and thinking, okay, maybe I should either make a list of people that I haven't spoken to for some time, or I should just look through my texts and WhatsApps and see like who's gone too far down the list. And yeah, for me, I definitely had to kind of make a little bit of a schedule of making sure I keep in touch with people because it was just too easy for that to slip. It's a thousand percent not the same as seeing people in that little safer window when, you know, we could see some people over the summer. It just felt like so joyful and different, but it made me think, okay, right now all we can do is text, WhatsApp, FaceTime, Zoom, whatever, but, you know, we need to do that. It's so important, isn't it? And I think we can talk about self-care and emphasize the self and think that that's something that we have to do alone. But actually, I think seeing self-care and connection with others is such a crucial part of it. Totally. I've loved this conversation. I think it's going to be so helpful. And the thing that I just take away from this conversation and your book is really that we have far more power than we realize Mm -hmm. to 
curate and create how we feel, what our lives look like, that really we are the manifestors of our life. And I hope that by listening to this conversation and some of the small practical ideas that you've given, people can really take that away with them. So thank you. And I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Funnily enough, we talked about boundaries today because we talked about the boundaries that people grow up with and the fact that we've had a very obvious boundary around us, you know, in 2020, like in several ways and at different times. So the gift that I would give to mothers is that holding healthy boundaries with every relationship that you have, your partner, your children, your friends, And having a very strong line in the sand for what you will and won't tolerate in terms of how people make you feel emotionally, how they get in your space or how they are in your space, how you feel in their presence. It could be like financially being taken advantage of or whatever. I'm giving quite extreme examples. I think it's a lot more subtle than that. And, you know, giving your children healthy boundaries is a really good thing to do. But I think as a mum, you're pulled in so many directions that your own sense of your boundaries can get lost. And I think raising your awareness of what they are and reaffirming them just to yourself, you don't really have to say anything to anyone once you've done that. So that's the gift I would give, really like having a strong sense of your boundaries, like physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. It's so important. We need to do another episode on boundaries, I think, another passion of mine. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy to connect thank you for writing the source and for your continued energy and wisdom that you put out into the world I'm really grateful to have had you on thank you so much I literally got lost in this conversation I actually forgot we were doing a podcast and that's never happened to me you have really beautiful energy thank you so much for having me on the podcast So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.